Well, good morning to all of you. It's good to see you today, and what a joy it is for Lisa, my wife, and I to be here with you today at Pitts Baptist Church. We were here uh, probably 12 years or so ago in a revival. Some of you have uh, indicated this morning, uh, speaking with you, that you remember that. But it is great to be here with you today. Let me tell you, we have enjoyed this time of worship. This has been great. You know, we go into all kinds of churches. In, in my role as president of Fruitland Baptist Bible College, I preach somewhere just about every Sunday in all types of different churches. And let me just be honest with you for a moment. Every now and again, we go into a church where the music is so bad <laughs> that if I was a soldier in the Lord's army, I believe he would give me combat pay for what I... <laughs> have had to sit through but I'm telling you what we've experienced here this morning wow it's been a blessing this has been true worship I, I tell you Jonathan you're doing a great job amen and the choir the staff the members that God has brought together here at Pitts Baptist Church you are a people of God who are blessed indeed but you know that don't you and you know that it's the Lord that you give thanks to. Thank you for your support of your pastor, Scott Davis, and during his time here at this church, uh, how you have faithfully supported him and allowing him to have this time on sabbatical. It just speaks so well of you as a congregation. And thank you for the opportunity to come and to fill the pulpit today and to bring a word from the Lord I want to take just uh, three minutes or so and share with you a little bit about Fruitland Baptist Bible College. Uh, I've been there for nine years serving as president. I was a pastor for 30 years prior to that and still get to do interim pastorates from time to time, which I greatly enjoy. But Fruitland has been in existence since 1946. We are a ministry of the Baptist State Convention of North Carolina, and we train people who have been called into ministry or people who may be considering a call to ministry they may not know exactly yet whether God is calling them or what that call may involve but they're there to learn and grow and be prepared we've talked about military today I like to think of it this way at Fruitland we sort of train the special forces who are going to be out there on the front lines for Jesus Christ and God sends us people of all ages the majority of our students are people who come to us right out of high school and continue on their education at Fruitland. Some come in middle years of life as God calls them. We have one man there who's 75 years old that God has called as a senior adult. And he said to me not long ago, he said, uh, President Horton, do you think that God will be able to use me at 75 years of age? And I said, I'm certain God will be able to use you. He didn't use Moses until he was 80 years old. You've got a five-year running start on Moses. <laughs> so God sends his students of all ages, and we thank God for them. And uh, I also want to thank you for your support of Fruitland in a number of ways. Thank you for praying for us, first of all. Thanks for sending students our way. And thanks for supporting us financially through the cooperative program. When you give to the cooperative program, you're supporting Fruitland Baptist Bible College. 
We are one of those ministries that receives uh, funds from the cooperative program, and about half of our budget comes to us from the cooperative program, which makes our tuition prices low enough that students can actually attend Fruitland for less than the cost of attending a local community college. And that is really a great deal. And parents of students especially appreciate that when they're sending their children uh, on to college. I've left some brochures and information here about Fruitland, about our program on the campus, about our online curriculum, which is our, our degree is fully available online now. And uh, you can take all of that or portions of that as you so desire. But uh, we'd love to talk with you further and uh, you can request information. Give us a call at Fruitland, and we'll be glad to, to help you with that. Well, thank you again for the opportunity to be here today. Well, we're thinking about America, and when you think about America, you can't help but think about all the world events that are around us that impact America. And so today, I want us to look at a passage of Scripture that I believe will provide great encouragement and help and comfort to us today. Turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. And I want to speak to you for a few moments today on the subject of the heavenly solution to our earthly problems. The heavenly solution to our earthly problems. And I'm going to begin reading in Revelation 5 with verse number 1. And I'm just going to quickly read through this chapter. And if you will, just imagine in your mind the scene that is unfolding in this passage of Scripture. You know, sometimes our minds can create a movie within our minds, can't they? And you can just picture something. This is one of those passages that I want you to just kind of settle in where you are for a moment and just imagine this scene unfolding. Revelation 5, verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. 
And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, here we are this morning, July the 1st, kind of in the heat of summer. But my mind goes back a few months before this, to the last week of winter when some unusual things happened in western North Carolina. Let me tell you what's not unusual in western North Carolina. What's, odd, what's not unusual is some of the worst driving I have ever seen in my entire life. Be careful if you're driving in western North Carolina. It seems like on some of those country roads that people have decided the safest thing to do is to just drive in the middle of the road and just kind of straddle the line, not taking one side or the other. And uh, not long ago, three days in a row, something happened with out-of-control vehicles that I will never forget. It happened, first of all, on March the 15th when an out-of-control vehicle crashed into Noah's Ark Animal Hospital in Franklin, North Carolina. And the story said that the lady who was uh, doing business there at the animal hospital, uh, she accidentally hit the gas pedal instead of the brake pedal, which propelled her car inside the animal hospital. Someone said that her words after that were, I'll be doggone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then on the next day, March the 16th, that morning, there was an out-of-control vehicle that crashed. It was a pickup truck that crashed into the living room of a home in Asheville. The driver of the truck took a sip of coffee which resulted in an uncontrollable coughing fit which made him pass out. And when he woke up, he and his pickup truck were in the living room of a house. Have you ever had a caffeine crash? <laughs> I bet it wasn't quite like that. I hope not. And then it continued on on Friday morning of that same week when a man drove his car 
into the Bojangles restaurant in Marion, North Carolina. Just, just drove his car right in to the restaurant. I guess he was looking for the drive through and found it in, in one way or another. Well, here's my advice to you. If you're driving in western North Carolina, watch out for out-of-control vehicles. Now, do you ever feel like you're living in a world that's out of control? I mean, you look around at the things we see and hear in the news. We look at the tension that is in our world. We look at America and we, we see some tense relationships with North Korea, with Iran, with China, with Russia, and with some other nations. And, and we wonder what's going to happen in regard to all these different situations right now. And then we look inside our own country and we see the division that's here in America. We see that we're divided today. Someone said that you would have to look back probably to the days of the Civil War to find a time when America was any more divided than we are right now. And it seems like that our division, it's not along geographical lines, but our division that we're facing today, it's along ideological lines that are getting further and further apart. America is divided economically, religiously, racially, morally, politically, uh, we are in trouble in many ways. And so we live in an out-of-control world, it seems. And there are a lot of people who look at the circumstances and they, then they look up and they say, is there anybody up there? God, why don't you do something? How long will you allow injustice to prevail? God, where are you? When we need you so much. Well, if you've ever asked those questions, this passage of Scripture is for you today. Because it gives us comfort. It gives us hope. It gives us encouragement. Is there a heavenly solution for our earthly problems? And the answer is yes. Yes, there is. But you have to look beyond our problems to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus is the heavenly solution to our earthly problems. The thing I love about the book of Revelation, especially this fifth chapter, is it gives us a full picture of Jesus. This is like looking at Jesus in high definition. This is Jesus in HD right here. In Revelation chapter 5. And when you get the full picture of Jesus, you are presented with Jesus as the heavenly solution to all of our earthly problems. And so as we look at Jesus in Revelation chapter 5 and we think about the situation that we're in in the modern 21st century, I want you to see several important details in this passage of Scripture. First of all, I call your attention to an intriguing scene. An intriguing scene. 
Verse 1 begins by saying, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Notice that John saw the throne in heaven, and it was an occupied throne. The throne wasn't vacant. The throne was not up for grabs. Some people in our, one, in our world wonder, who is in charge here? Well, God is in charge. He is large, and He is in charge. This verse assures us that things are not running out of control. Things are running very much under his control. He is in charge. Now notice who it is on the throne. It's not Muhammad. It's not Confucius. It's not Buddha. It's not a Hollywood star or a sports celebrity. It is Almighty God upon the throne and he is ready to take care of business. He is ready to do his work. The one who occupied the throne held in his hand a scroll. And there was writing on the front and on the back of the scroll. That was unusual in those days. Because typically they just wrote on one side of the scroll. But this scroll has writing on both sides. And as we find out later in the book of Revelation, this scroll contains the judgment of God that is going to be poured out upon the world. And the scroll being written on both sides, it means that it is full to the max with the judgment of God. This scroll is the title deed of the earth. And it is given to the one who has the responsibility and the power to rule and to reign. And God the Father has this scroll in his hand as he is upon the throne. Now, we wonder, will God ever execute judgment on an unbelieving world? I'm sure John the Apostle must have wondered the same thing when he was given the book of Revelation. When John was given this book, the world was in a mess at that time. The Roman emperor was a man by the name of Domitian. Pliny, the historian, describes Domitian as the beast from hell that sat in its den licking blood. Now that's not a good thing to be said about you if you're a political leader. That's not good PR. You wouldn't want that to get out about you uh, on Twitter or YouTube or Facebook or wherever that it may be. But that's the kind of reputation that Domitian had. He, he was a demented kind of man. And I could go into all kinds of things about his behavior that's recorded. But probably the most significant thing about Domitian is that he is the first Roman emperor to give himself the title God the Lord. You talk about being full of arrogance and ego for someone to proclaim himself, God the Lord. He insisted that people refer to him as Lord of the earth, invincible, glory, holy, thou alone. Those are the kind of terms that, that Domitian wanted people to use when they described him. So that tells you what kind of a man that he was. And of course, Jews and Christians refused to go along with such nonsense. And as a result of that, they were persecuted severely. 
And so, in his revelation, God lifted John's eyes away from the earthly throne that was occupied by the Roman Emperor Domitian. And God lifted John's eyes to the heavenly throne that was occupied by God himself. When John looked to the earthly throne, he saw confusion and chaos. But when he looked to the heavenly throne, he experienced calm and confidence because of the one who was on the throne. Let me challenge you in the middle of a confusing, chaotic world, to spend less less time looking at the 24-hour cable news channels and constantly checking the internet for the news that is going on. Spend less time doing that and spend more time in the Word of God, worshiping God, focusing on the one who is on the throne, the one who is over all, and the one who is controlling all. G. Campbell Morgan said, The man who measures things by the circumstances of the hour is filled with fear. The man who sees Jehovah enthroned and governing has no panic. There was a little boy in a worship service one morning, and the choir was singing a song that said, God is on the throne. And the little boy misunderstood the words and he thought they were singing, God is on the phone. (laughs) And so he went around all that afternoon singing a little song, God is on the phone. He cares for his own. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning, God isn't on the phone, but he is on the throne. And he rules and he reigns from the throne room of this universe. The intriguing Seen. That's the first detail of the passage. But now I want to call your attention to a second detail. Notice a perplexing dilemma. A perplexing dilemma. In verses 2 through 4, we're told that uh, a strong angel proclaimed with a loud voice, Who's worthy to take the scroll and open it and to loose its seals? And John said, No one in heaven was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look at it. And so John is weeping because no one is able to open the scroll. Now, there would have been many who would have been willing to take this title deed of the earth, the right to rule and to reign. There are many who would have been willing to have taken that scroll. Alexander the Great would have been wheeling. Genghis Khan, Napoleon, Hitler. There would have been a number of people who would have been willing to have taken the scroll, but the question was not who is willing. The question is who is worthy. And that's a totally different question. And so, trying to find one worthy to open the scroll resulted in the largest manhunt in the universe. The largest manhunt in human history that we know about it was the hunt for Osama bin Laden several years ago. And we found him. But here there's a manhunt that goes throughout the three realms of God's creation trying to find someone worthy to open the scroll. They searched the angelic realm, and Michael the archangel was not worthy. 
Gabriel, who announced the birth of Christ. Even Gabriel was not worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals. And then they looked under the earth. Not Satan, nor the demons of hell, or any of the inhabitants of hell were able to open the scroll. And then they looked upon all those who had walked upon the earth. And they found that Abraham, the father of many nations, he wasn't worthy. Moses, who could part the Red Sea and bring water from the rock, Moses wasn't worthy. Samson and all of his strength could not open the seals. Solomon, with all of his wisdom, could not open the scroll. John the Baptist couldn't open it. The Apostle Paul could not open it. And I have some news for you. The Supreme Court of the United States cannot open it. Donald Trump cannot open it. Vladimir Putin cannot open it. And it's for certain that Congress could not open it. They can't even agree on how to open a Christmas present. <laughs> let alone how to open this scroll. You know, often we look to the wrong places to find answers, don't we? And we look for an earthly solution to an earthly problem instead of looking to a heavenly solution. And oh, how helpless, how helpless we feel when we look around us and we find, just like John, no one's worthy. No one's able to solve this problem. And so John is weeping. In this passage of Scripture, why is John weeping? He knew that if the scroll was not opened, that there would never be retribution upon the wicked. He knew that there would never be the restoration of Israel. And he knew that the reign of Christ would not occur upon the earth. And the saint's prayer of thy kingdom come, it would not be answered unless someone was found worthy to open the scroll. And so we're left here in these verses with the picture of the aged apostle John with tears streaming down his weather-beaten face, weeping in shame over Adam's ruined race, not one of whom is worthy to take up the challenge from the throne. Think of it of all the billions and billions of people who've lived on the earth. Not one of them is fit to rule and to reign. Not one is found worthy to open the scroll. A perplexing dilemma. But there's a third detail of this passage that we dare not miss. And that is a surprising announcement. A surprising announcement. Look again. At verses 5 through 7, one of the elders said to John, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And John looks, and in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and the elder stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. And then look at what happens in verse 7. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. 
when John hears this surprising announcement. John turns thinking that he's going to see a lion, but instead he sees a lamb. A lamb. Was there ever a more dramatic moment in the history of the universe? The lion was none other than the lamb. Now let's focus on the lamb for just a moment. I want you to see the presence of the lamb. The scripture says the lamb was in the midst of the throne. Heaven is all about the lamb, ladies and gentlemen. It's all about the lamb. You know, Jesus is referred to directly as a lamb only twice in the Old Testament. Twice in the Gospels he's referred to as the lamb. Only once in the book of Acts and once in the epistles. But Jesus is referred to as the Lamb 28 times in the book of Revelation. Heaven is all about the Lamb. Now the streets of gold and the walls of jasper and the gates of pearl and being reunited with loved ones, all of that is going to be wonderful. But what really makes heaven heaven, it's the Lamb who's in the midst. The presence of the Lamb, but then look at the power of the Lamb. The Lamb has seven horns, which indicates supreme power. He has seven eyes, which indicates that he's able to see everything. In theological terms, it means that he is omnipotent and he is omni, uh, omniscient. He's able to see all things. He's able to do all things. And it's amazing that, th that this Lamb is pictured this way. What makes it even more amazing is the Greek word for lamb in this passage literally means little lamb. Little lamb. Now look at the contrast in the book of Revelation. Satan is pictured as the great fiery dragon. The Antichrist is pictured as a fearful beast. The masses of the ungodly line up to fight against heaven and against all of this. God sets forth a little lamb. But you better watch that little lamb. He packs a powerful punch because this lamb is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. The power of the Lamb. But then, not, don't miss this, the preeminence of the Lamb. Of course, you know and I know that this Lamb is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is nothing less than astonishing what we see here. Jesus, the Lamb, walks right up to God the Father who has the title deed to the earth and He walks up and He takes that scroll. From the hand of God the Father. There's probably not another passage in the New Testament that testifies more to the deity of Christ than that particular passage right there. Jesus is the one who is worthy, and they praise him for how worthy that he is. Now, you see him as the lion, and you see him as the lamb, and Jesus is both. And if you find it difficult to get your head around the truth that Jesus is both the lion and the lamb, then let me, be, let me assure you that you're not the first. 
to be amazed by this truth. That he can be both God and man at the same time. That he can be both the lion and the lamb. When Jesus was a 12-year-old boy in the temple, he confounded the minds of the scholars. I wonder if the conversation might have gone something like this. The scholars ask, What is your name, son? And he answers, On my mother's side, it's Jesus. But on my father's side, it's Emmanuel. Well, son, how old are you? On my mother's side, I'm 12 years old. <laughs> but on my father's side, <laughs> I'm older than my mother, and I am just as old as my father. You might say that I am from everlasting to everlasting. Well, what religion are you? On my mother's side, I'm a Jew from the house of David. But on my father's side, I am the one who will be worshipped and adored throughout eternity. Well, what are your plans for the future, young man? And he answers, on my mother's side, I'll go to a cross and I'll die. But on my father's side, in three days, I'm going to be raised again. And I'm going to ascend unto the Father in glorious resurrection. Oh, what a picture John gives us of the Lord Jesus Christ, of both the lion and the lamb in the middle of confusing and chaotic times. Oh, how we need to see Jesus. He's the heavenly solution to our earthly problems. A.W. Tozer said, Worship rises or falls with our concept of God. If there's one terrible disease in the church of Christ, it is that we do not see God as great as He is. And I believe He hit the nail on the head when He said that. And so here, Jesus is presented to us in high definition as the solution to our earthly problems. But now, we've noticed three details in this passage. We've noticed an intriguing scene. We've noticed a perplexing dilemma and then a surprising announcement. Then, but then I want you to see the fourth detail. The fourth detail is an inclusive adoration. An inclusive adoration. And in verses 8 through 14 that we read earlier, you see a celebration of praise like the world has never known. There's the source of praise. All creation is involved in this celebration. All those around the throne in verse 8. The myriads of angels in verse 11. And all those on earth and under the earth in verse 13 join in this celebration. No one is left out. John Calvin said, there's not a corner in heaven or on earth where God is not praised. The most holy service that we can render to God is to be employed in praising His name. And to that I say, Amen. The source of praise, it's about God. And those involved in this celebration are all of His creation. But then notice the specifics of praise. What do they do in this celebration of praise? Let me summarize a whole lot of content. 
by just simply saying this. They acclaim his greatness, they acknowledge his goodness, and they adore his grace. That's what they do. And one of the ways that they do that is by singing. Verse 9 says they sang a new song unto the Lord. You know, one of the things I love so much about Christianity, Christianity is a singing religion. That makes us unique to many of the religions of the world. The Muslims, the Hindus, the Confucianists, they don't sing because they have nothing to sing about. That's why they don't sing. The Buddhist, they don't sing, they just hum. That's all they can do. But as Christians, we sing. And we enjoy singing and music as a part of our worship because we have something to sing about. We have someone to praise and music just brings us together in that. There's the source of praise, the specifics of praise, and and then there is the subject of praise. And the subject of praise is the one who sits on the throne. You see, ladies and gentlemen, worship is not really about us, is it? It's all about the one who sits on the throne. It's all about worshiping and adoring him. And in our consumer-driven, self-centered world, we need to understand that worship, it's not about us. It's about God. He is the subject of our praise, not us. William Willimon describes the tragedy of modern worship like this. Quote, The focus is on me, my feelings, my thoughts, my commitments, my guilt, my needs. I am the center of worship, the focus of a carefully orchestrated series of Sunday morning activities that are designed to do something to or for me. We are so busy looking at ourselves, no wonder we sometimes miss God. End of quote. That's not too shabby for a United Methodist professor at Duke Divinity School, is it? And if Methodists can realize that, how much more should we realize it as Baptists? He is the subject of our praise, the one who sits on the throne. And then last of all, the season of praise. Verses 13 and 14 tell us about a season of praise that will be forever and forever. Eternity is going to be filled with the praises of God and the ACLU and the liberal activist judges and all those who would oppose the claims of Christ. They will not be able to stop it. They will not be able to shut it down. Revelation chapter 5 assures us that Almighty God is upon the throne he is much in control of all that happens around us and the events that are going to unfold and because of that here in the United States of America on July the 1st 2018 I'm telling you as the people of God we can have peace in the midst of the storm because Jesus is the heavenly solution to our earthly problems. During a routine flight, a commercial airliner started experiencing some major turbulence. People in the aisles were stumbling all around. 
trays and food were flying through the air. The oxygen mask fell down in front of the passengers. People were in a panic. Even the flight attendants who were used to turbulent weather were concerned about what was happening. But in the middle of all that chaos, a little boy had his tray down and he was playing with his toys and he was humming a little song to himself. An older woman across the aisle looked at that little boy and said, Son, how can you be so calm at a time like this? And the little boy said, Oh, that's easy. The man who's up front piloting this plane, he's my daddy. He's my daddy. When it appears like the world is out of control, when it seems that the events of your life are not making sense, I want to remind you that the Father and the Son, they're very much in control. And Jesus is the heavenly solution to our earthly problems. This morning, he can not only solve the problems of the world and the universe, but he can solve the problems in your individual life. And if you've never received him to be your Savior and to be your Lord, I pray that you will come and that you'll do so this morning in the time of invitation. Let's bow together as we prepare. Heavenly Father, I pray in the next few minutes that you will work in a very special, personal way in the lives of people here. And if there are those who need to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, help them to come. If there are others who need to just bring burdens to you and find a place here on the altar to get in touch with you, I pray that they will come. If there are people who need to respond to your call, if there are people who need to come for church membership, whatever, dear Lord, your Holy Spirit does, I pray that our answer to you this morning will be yes. May we allow Jesus to be the heavenly solution to every earthly problem that we encounter. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.